0: The title of today's sermon is Wait for the Call Before You Answer, and we're going to be looking at a story that should be familiar to most of you that have spent much time in your your Bible, but I want to come at it from a slightly different angle, and I hope that the Holy Spirit is able to catch you in a way today that is similar to the way that the Holy Spirit got a hold of me as I was wrestling through this particular text. But I have a question for you, and I want this to be fairly interactive. I don't want you to to tell me the story. But have you ever found yourself in a situation where you made a decision and it started a, a reaction that you did not anticipate? Okay. This is the interactive part. Okay. There was a gentleman in Michigan who was in a protracted battle with the city over whether his house had been justly condemned and whether they had the right to tear it down. And they went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And finally, the day came when the judge ruled that the city could tear down the house. So the date was set. The man had run out of options. And he came up with one other potential solution. The equipment arrived. The big track hoe with the grapple tore down the house. And the man came back after they had left jubilant that his house had not been taken down. Because he had taken the numbers off of his house and put it on the next door neighbor's house. It, it, I'm not going to tell you the whole story, but it, it created an additional series of events for him that he may not have anticipated. But in the pressure of that moment and in the frustration, it seemed like a great idea, even though it was short-lived. And we as humans, in the absence Of living in the center of God's will can look back on our lives and see that we have had a series of it seemed like a great idea. But then you look back on it and you're like, what in the world were you thinking? And I just want you to kind of keep that as the backdrop as we begin our journey in God's Word today. Let's pray one more time. Dear Heavenly Father, The whole point of the message that you have placed on my heart today is the fact that without you, we are nothing but a hot mess. And it is in recognition of that fact that I personally ask for your Holy Spirit to come and permeate this room right now. That your Holy Spirit would do the work of pushing our smartphones into our pockets. That your Holy Spirit would do the work of of allowing us to rest in your presence and in your word, that the busyness and the the work and the, the challenges and the stresses that attend to us six days a week could be pushed out of our minds at least for a little while. That, Lord, is something that we can't do ourselves, and it's nothing that I can do. But we ask that you would be here in a powerful way, that as we come with open hearts and minds to your word, that we would experience a blessing that can only come from you. That is our desire right now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Did you have the opportunity of taking a class from Dr. Dukan when you were at seminary? Okay. I ended up taking an Old Testament exegesis class from Dr. Dukan on the book of Genesis. And I don't know about your Hebrew class, but Dr. Dukan did not allow electronics in his classrooms. He did not allow you to take bathroom breaks. And he would quote the New Testament only to say, let the dead bury their dead. You get back to class. And it was difficult to adjust to at first. But then you realize that the reason that he was so protective of his class time is not because he wanted you to hear what he had to say, but that he took Scripture so seriously, he would not have you distracted on Facebook during such an important time. And he's only about this tall, maybe, and he would walk around, his, his Bible was in pieces, and he would walk around with a piece of it flopped over his hand, and he would be quoting it to you in Hebrew without looking. And then he would occasionally flip it up and use one word in the text to jog his memory, and then it would flip back over his hand. But he said to me this thing that I, that I won't forget. He said, if you don't understand Genesis 1 verse 1, you can't understand Genesis 1 through 3. And if you can't understand one ver- ver- chapter's 1 through 3, you can't understand Genesis chapters 1 through 11. And if you don't understand Genesis 1 through 11, the rest of Genesis doesn't make sense. And if you don't understand Genesis, the rest of the Pentateuch doesn't make sense. And if the Pentateuch doesn't make sense, the rest of the Old Testament doesn't make sense. And if the Old Testament doesn't make sense, the New Testament doesn't make sense. And he goes, "So you better understand Genesis" 1, verse 1. And he made such a big deal of it, I can still say it today in Matthew's accented version of Hebrew. Because he would say it over and over again. He would say, bara Elohim et ve'et ha'aretz. And he wouldn't stop there, but he'd just keep on, he'd on going. But I heard it over and over and over and over and over and over again. And I remember the first day of class was Genesis 1, 1. We spent a whole bunch of time on bereshit, 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 Bereshit in the beginning, Bereshit. we took it apart. We looked at it in all these different things, and he kept saying, Bereshit, Bereshit, Bereshit. And he's like, pay attention because this word will mean something later in the class. So I go through a whole semester, and semesters seem much longer when you're in an exegetical Hebrew class. We get to the very end of the semester, and he said, okay, class, I want to see how much you've been paying attention. He said, what is the last word in the book of Genesis in Hebrew? Now, we had spent all this time talking about how we had covered almost 1,500 years of history in fifty short chapters, and when you look at at the the importance of certain passages, you look at the, the the life of Joseph and how much time it took, and other things like that. I mean, every single word matters, and he kept he kept emphasizing if you were going to write one book this long that covered what God had been up to for arguably the fifteen hundred most important years of earth's history as he is actively initiating the plan of salvation and the the great controversy is ramping up and the battle lines are being drawn and everything is taking place where every single word counts. What would you choose to be the last word in in, in in the book of Genesis? Well, what do you think we were doing? I had no idea what the last word in Genesis was, so we're actively flipping through, and I'll save you the word. It's Bemitzrayim. So the first word is Bereshit, and the last one is Bemitzrayim. And I was like, okay, well, that's the last word in Egypt. And he says, why? And I'm not going to take the time to go through the study. And, and with Hebrew, it's... Greek is very logical. Hebrew is very artistic. The one, my biggest takeaway from my class in Genesis with Dr. Dukan is that the author of, G- of Genesis was a genius first, and then God added inspiration on top of genius. Because it is a mind-blowing book. When you look at why certain words were used and the amount of meaning that is used by the rhymes and the repetitions and the rhythms and the spacing and everything else. You realize, I I am dealing with somebody that makes Handel's Messiah look like kindergarten work. And he says, listen, I'm telling you this right now. The first book of the Bible starts with Bereshit, which is telling you the truth about how it really is. And it ends with Bemitzrayim which means in Egypt. And it ends telling you where you really are. And the book of Genesis introduces how humanity started here and ended up with God's people in Egypt. And he goes, and if you can understand that, the rest of what God is up to will make sense. But if you don't understand, he's like, there's people that did they, that. And he would talk oftentimes with his eyes closed. There's people that don't understand. And he's like, it's not because they can't understand. It's just because they just don't understand. <laughs> and that, that's what we're looking at. But now I want you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus 1. If you're looking at your Bible and you look at Genesis 50 verse 26... You'll see, at least in the New King James Version, the last two words there are, in Egypt. And then you turn right over to to Exodus chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, verse 9, and he said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Lest they multiply, and it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar and brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they had made them serve was with rigor. Well, that was their, their first plan. Did it work? No. So they come to plan two. The king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives of whom the name of one was Shipra and the other... And he said, When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women, and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then you then she shall live. But the midwives feared God, and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. For they are lively and give birth before the midwives can get to them. Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. We're going to see this word mighty again. And if you need a Sabbath afternoon activity, just do a word study on mighty. Mighty. Because it is, it, it's a specific word. You don't... It's, they're not using it here like, boy, I'm mighty hungry. That's not how the word is being used here. Mighty carries with it connotations of exceptional capability or, or, or strength or um, prowess. It oftentimes is associated with war. David's mighty men of valor. So it's a word that where it's describing here, the people are, are becoming mighty. This is something that you would be worried about if you were Pharaoh because might is a potential threat to your nation. Verse 21, and it was because the midwives feared God that He provided households for them. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall be cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save. Now, I'm not going to go through the next few verses on Moses being how he was born. I want to point out, though, in the last part of verse 10, she says, Because I drew him out... Of the water, and you will see that there is again. We're not going to go this deep into the Hebrew right now, but this drawing out of the water, God is basically saying, the one that you have drawn out of the water is the same one that I will use to draw my people out of Egypt. And so God is saying it, it, it is a it, it's, it's like a little mini insight. It was certain death for Moses and yet God drew him out of the river. And it's going to be certain death for the people of Israel, and yet God is going to draw him out. Now we come to verse 11, and this is the meat of what I'm, what I'm wanting to drive at in today's message. "'Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens.'" And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So in an act of maniacal rage, he killed him. Is that what it says? What does it say? So he looked this way. And he looked that way. And when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. We don't have the answer to this question, but I just want you to think about it. Does that strike you as a description of someone who has taken their first human life? No. I'm not saying Moses killed a bunch of people before. I'm just saying that that is not how people typically operate when we do that. And and, and I, I want you to hold that thought as we turn back to Acts. Did Moses know that God was going to use him to draw his people out of Egypt? Huh? It's a trick question. I always say it's a trick question when I hear some people answering it right and some people answering it wrong. Turn with me to Acts chapter 7. This is the We're jumping into the middle of Stephen's challenge to God's people just before they stone him, and we're going to pick up in verse 21. When Moses was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was exposed in a general manner. Is that what it says? He was what? Learn what, what, what does it mean to be learned as opposed to, exposed to? Taught? How many of you have been taught something that you didn't learn? I'm, I'm asking a serious question. I mean, it's, one that, it's not like they took him on a tour of the temple. and They're like, and this is kind of the temple. And this is kind of how we run the military. This is how we, we do this. What, what, does, what does it say? He learned. It. Now, luckily, learn doesn't necessarily mean believe, but this is not a casual passing exposure to Egypt. And does it say that he learned only the art of Egypt? He learned all. All the wisdom of the Egyptians and was what? Mighty in words and what? So Moses could talk above average. He could write and read above average. He could do deeds above average. And he was exposed to all the wisdom. Of the Egyptians. Can you come up with a more qualified candidate in human speaking? I don't know about you, but I don't go around describing most people with words like all, everything, best, biggest. Mighty deeds, words, actions—like this is this is something I'm, I'm wanting you to understand. That Scripture draws a picture for us of Moses that we sometimes think of as like the beat down old man with a bush talking to him. But that is not Moses. Moses is a prince of Egypt. What were the Egyptians known for at this point in earth's history? Art. Moses learned all of it. Architecture. He learned all of it. Engineering. He learned all of it. Agriculture. He knew all of it. Trade. He knew all of it. Military strength. He knew all of it. Now, I'm not going to get into some of the, the, the Jewish historians that supposedly quoted earlier works that no longer exist and other things like this, but but there are some people that argue that there are historical records that show that Moses was a general responsible for a major military campaign against the Ethiopians where he came back victorious and had distinguished himself in his military Leadership And I want you to think Of someone who has spent Formative years with his mother at home But then for the last multiple decades Walking the halls of power In the most powerful nation in the earth Learning all of the trade secrets Learning all Of the ways on how to navigate This having legitimate Power and authority Military experience And this is the individual who is known for being mighty in words and actions. And he pays his brethren a visit. And he looks at somebody, and what does he do? He acts. This is not new. This is not the first time where Moses just like came out of a monastery and is like, I think I'm going to go try and deliver my people. And and this is what I wanted to drive at here in verse 25. So he kills the Egyptian. Verse 25 says, For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. But they didn't understand. So this tells us that Moses knew what God was doing with his life in relation to his people when he killed the Egyptian. He knew what God was going to do with his life when he killed the Egyptian. But who didn't? They didn't understand. Turn with me back to Exodus chapter 2. Moses could talk the talk. He could walk the walk. He was the complete package. He would have been a physical specimen. He would have looked like a prince. He would have acted like a prince. He would have had the power of a prince. I like Patriarchs and Prophets 245 it says that the court of Pharaoh Moses received the highest civil and military training. That's why I'm saying I don't think that the taskmaster was his first foray into hand-to-hand conflict. The monarch who's the monarch in Egypt? had determined to make his adopted grandson his successor to the throne. So if you're Pharaoh, and you have chosen Moses to be the next Pharaoh, what kind of training and preparation are you going to give him? Everything. Access to everything, all of the top secret clearances, all of, the, all of the clearance into the strategy and the planning, the infrastructure of the nation, the strengths, the weaknesses, navigating all of the different dynamics, understanding the world in which he lived, the geography, the, the, the topography, the, the supply routes, the, the nations as neighbors, what their strengths and weaknesses are, how to navigate diplomacy. He would have been exposed to all of it. Continuing on here, it says, the youth was was educated for this high station. His ability as a military leader made him a favorite of the armies of Egypt. And he was generally regarded as a remarkable character. How many of you in this room are soldiers? Okay, we got one. How excited would you be to follow somebody into the military, into, into conflict that had zero experience with conflict? No. So, I mean, what, I, I, what I'm driving at here is what is the makeup or composition of Moses if he is a military favorite? This, this is a powerful person. This is a person that is a force to be reckoned with. It wasn't a surprise to other people in the court if, if Pharaoh was grooming him to be the next Pharaoh. This is a big deal. But, but what? The Israelites didn't understand. Walter Kaiser once said, Minds capable of great virtue are subject to great vice when that God-given asset is turned into a liability through haste, pride, or stubbornness. Patriarchs and Prophets uh, continues, In slaying the Egyptian, Moses had fallen into the same error, so often committed by his fathers, of taking into their own hands the work which God had promised to do. It was not God's will to deliver his people by warfare. Well, if God wasn't intending to deliver his people by warfare, why would he give so much warfare training to the person that was supposed to take them into the Promised Land? Why? Was Israel going to need an army after they had taken the Promised Land? Absolutely. But Moses didn't know that God was planning on doing all of the, the fighting for them as they took the Promised Land. He assumed that the reason that you have laid this call on my life and prepared me for it by giving me all of this military training is why? So that I can be a military leader when our people go into the Promised Land. Is that a logical approach to the situation? Yeah. From a human perspective, absolutely. It made total sense. But God says, listen, I'm not asking for logical. I'm asking for faithfulness. And faithfulness does not always appear logical to the people who don't understand the journey of faith. It doesn't work that way. So it was not God's will to deliver his people by warfare, as Moses thought, but by God's own mighty power that the glory might be ascribed to him alone. Moses had yet to learn the same lesson of faith that Abraham and Jacob had been taught, not to rely upon human strength or wisdom, but upon the power of God for the fulfillment of His promises. So in your life today, what percentage of your time and energy is spent on wrestling with God for Him to fulfill the promises in your life versus you doing your plan. Because this is what we're talking about. Verse 13 of Exodus chapter 2. When he went out a second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. He said to one who who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? This isn't totally clear from this verse here. Two men are fighting. Moses said to the one who did the wrong. What does that tell us about the situation? Moses has made a judgment. As a ruler in Egypt, he has said, You are wrong and you are right. Why are you fighting? And how did they respond? Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and he said, surely this thing is known. See, Moses... Moses was learning how fast gossip spreads in the church. And he realized that surely this thing is known. And that no amount of power, prestige, or military training was going to put the cork back in the bottle. And so he fled. Moses, But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. Question. So if he's with the people, we'll say in the Goshen area, and then Midian is on the other side of the Sinai Peninsula. So if you're looking at the, at the Red Sea where it has the two forks, it's from here all the way over. If you go in a straight line, you're looking at about 240 miles. You saw the offering call this morning with the camels walking through that place. It's not like it's, not like it's a picnic. I have a question for you. How did Moses survive on the run for two, three hundred miles through the desert? All of his military training. He He knew it like the back of his hand because God had been preparing him to navigate people through it, but now he's running for his life through it. But I'll just tell you right now, we could take everyone in this church and put them over there and tell you to make it to Midian, and we would probably have a 0% success rate. But he had learned how to navigate these places. He had learned how to survive. He had learned how to do all these different things. And then we go on further in the story. It says, he sat down by a well. And what happens next tells us that it's not like he was dragging himself across the sand, thinking that he was delirious with an illusion of of an oasis and other things like that. He goes and he sits down by the well, and then what happens? You remember the story? The priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came and drew water. They filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. Is this a man on the brink of death? No. And I like, I like how modest Moses is here as he's writing this story. I just stood up and watered their flock. And what's Jethro do? How did you guys get home so early? What'd they say? They said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. He also drew enough water for us and watered our flock. Jethro's like, time out. Time out. Where is he? What's an Egyptian doing at a well in Midian? How many times, though, do we pull a Moses in our own lives? In review, we have learned the lesson that we don't want to do life on our own. So we ask God for His will. And then as soon as we think we can identify the trajectory of His will, what do we do? Okay, thank you for the information. I can do it all myself now. I figured it out. I know how this is going. I'm ready to kill the Egyptian and take this over by military might. And God is saying, listen, just because you can understand the trajectory doesn't mean that we are done. Just because you have the call doesn't mean that I have given you the tactics or the timing or the place. And you see, you see... God-fearing, well-intentioned people pulling a Moses all the time. Especially in like an evangelistic series. You ever, you, ever, you ever met Moses in an evangelistic series? First night? What you really want to know is night 17 because on night 17, we're going to discuss this, that, and the other thing. And is the trajectory correct? Huh? Huh? But is that God's plan? You see, we wrestle with this. this is, I, 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 don't know how, I don't know how to stress how big of an issue this is in our lives. Because many times, if it, many times we're so stubborn we don't ask for God's will. And then when we do ask for God's will, we assume that once He tells us, it means that we now have license to do whatever we want within the confines of how we interpret His will. But what God is saying is, when I give you the trajectory, that means I've just given you a glimpse into the the journey that we are going to go on together. But there is a day-by-day, moment-by-moment, step-by-step process that I'd like to have a conversation with you about over how we're going to do this. So that when you run into an obstacle, we can have a conversation. God, is this by your power? Is this something that you want me to just try and go around? How do you want to do that? Now, Moses figured this out, right? Because he was somebody that even knew God, panim al panim, in other words, face to face. He, he figured this out to the point where he would go back and forth with God. And, and from this moment onward, we only have a record of one time that Moses jumped the gun. The rest of the time, he waited for clear instructions every time. Because he learned. He was a genius, and he was way smarter than a lot of us. So it took him one time in life to recalibrate his entire life. We don't know all the stuff that happened while he was out shepherding sheep and unlearning the ways of the Egyptians and the the things like that. But what what I'm driving at here is he went all in on having God as a partner in his life. And he was no longer trying to anticipate and do things his own way. He came to a situation, there was an uproar in the camp, and he's like, okay, God, what what do you want to do here? Okay, this is what we're going to do. Okay, God, what do you want to do here? Okay, this is what we're going to do. Okay, God, how do you want to handle it? Okay, this is what we're going to do. But is that how you navigate your life? Where you, Every time you run into an obstacle, every time you run into a challenge, your first reaction is to stop, okay, God, Um, How are we going to navigate this one? Okay, this is what we're going to do. Okay, God, how are we going to navigate this one? Okay, this is what we're going to do. There is no way to live a life of faithfulness if you are only occasionally checking in. It's impossible. In the interest of time, we are not going to dig into the burning bush situation but i will drive home at this point god goes to moses says i want you to go deliver my people and moses responds as any good military trained person would do you want to take a million or so men plus all of their stuff and take them through where i came from when i came here i'm not interested and besides i can't talk can he talk I mean, the guy was known for his being mighty in words and deeds. The only thing that has changed here is that by the time God meets him at the burning bush, Moses has no interest in his personal capabilities being a factor in the equation. Somebody once told me the reason that so few people achieve greatness in life is because they're the hero of all their own daydreams. And so Moses, he could, God shows up to him and he's like, oh, no, I'm not qualified. I'm not interested. I can't talk. I can't do all this other stuff. We have plenty of evidence that he can. And it's only when God says, go, that he then responds appropriately. Okay, well, I, I, I understand an order. And so he goes. And he negotiates to have Aaron involved and other things like that. But I want you to look at this. Again, from Patriarchs and Prophets. In order to receive God's help, man must realize his weakness and deficiency. I want you to go back to the story of Moses. When Moses, before he killed the Egyptian, was Moses weak? Was he weak? It depends on how we're defining this, right? Because if we're looking from man's appearance, he's not weak. He is a ripped senior military and civilian leader in the prime of his career and in the pipeline to be the next Pharaoh. He's not weak. Is he deficient in anything? From a human perspective, no. He's got all the education. He's got all the wisdom. He's got things lined up. Everything is right. So what happens is some people will go through... In order to realize, to receive God's help, man must realize his weakness and deficiency. And people have a tendency to look at that from a human perspective and be like, yeah, I don't have as much money as I wish I had, or I have debt, or I have this, or I have that. They're missing the whole point. The issue here is one of character and relationship, not resources, education, pedigree, training, whatever else you want. That's, That's not the weakness of man that we're talking about. The deficiency comes from the fact that if you think that those things need to be part of the equation in leading a life of faithfulness, that you are weak and deficient. Because there is a widow who once put two mites in. Jesus recognized it, wrote it into Scripture, and she is going to be worth more in heaven, Lee Treasure, than any billionaire who gives away the entirety of his fortune in 2021. Because she's been compounding interest for 2,000 years. Okay, so if you look at it from the human perspective, she gave nothing. But when you look at it from a spiritual perspective, she's going to be one of the wealthiest people in heaven. She's going to have more treasure there than you're going to be able to keep up with. Because she was what? All in and faithful. Even though it was the last thing, she knew that she was nothing without being faithful to God and his plans. He must apply his own mind to the great change to be wrought in himself. That's talking about all of us that are weak and deficient. He must be aroused to earnest and persevering prayer and effort. Effort in what? Earnest and persevering prayer, right? Some people have devotions like this. Dear Jesus, what's your will for me today? To make money? Okay. Amen. And then they, they go and they're, they're like, I was persevering and being earnest all day trying to make money. God, where is my blessing? That's not what we're talking about. Wrong habits and customs must be shaken off. And it is only by determined endeavor to correct these errors and to conform to right principles that the victory can be gained. Many never attain the position that they might occupy. Which would have been a better position for Moses? Pharaoh of Egypt or leader of God's people as they went into the promised land? At what point in earth's history? That's the correct answer. But that's given not from the human perspective. I mean, if you were a betting person, would you rather choose Pharaoh or the guy that Pharaoh's mad at and mobilizing his army to go get that is taking millions of sheep herders out into a place with no food, water, or shelter? Which would you choose? And this is why we get into trouble when God comes into our lives, because He calls us and He says, I want you to go do this. And you're like, that's impossible. That's a million people through a place with no food, water, or shelter. Like, surely the trajectory is off here. And He's like, oh, but I thought you wanted to have a life where you would have a legacy and stories of all the great things that I had done in your life. Well, I'm not sure I want to eat. Mana, like, I would rather eat freeze-dried food. We play these games. You run into Adventists, and you're like, are you on the mission? Are you on the trajectory for the three angels' message into all the world? And they're like, well, I mean, I, I'm kind of... Yes, I do pay tithe, but... Um, I just came from Montana, so I can say these things. But I, I, I did just get 40 acres surrounded on three sides by National Forest. It's got good southern exposure. And i kind of building a house with good tactical viewpoint of the valley and escape route. It's got a root cellar. And I, I just got my Harvest Right freeze dryer and, you know, like all these different things. And so, yeah, I mean, that's the three angels' message, right? And I'm saying, well, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those things. I wouldn't mind being able to eat freeze-dried bananas. But the point is this. If that's your plan, you're going to end up murdering an Egyptian. Because God says, the way that it works, and I, I, I guarantee that by the time we get to the end of this earth's history, There is going to be some missionary in the inner city that is going to be led out of that city by the hand of an angel and fed water from a rock and manna from heaven while some Adventist is shooting at people trying to protect their freeze-dried bananas. Because it is about faithfulness. And when it says here that we must wrestle and that we may never attain the position that we might occupy because we wait for God to do for us that which He has given us power to do for ourselves. But what is He talking about here? Is He talking about us going out and working harder? What's He saying? What are we supposed... What has He given us the power to do for ourselves? Engage him. He's like, I, if I could take Moses out of, the, out of the river and put him in line to be Pharaoh, I can prepare you for whatever position that I need to. But the energy needs to be placed on engaging God on his will. It's not working harder because if, if it was just working hard, then we would all have these spiritual legacies like we have about people in the bible but what's what's crazy is when you look at how many people live and how many stories we have recorded in scripture we realize how few people achieve eternal greatness because they just choose not to engage god and say god today the next step the next moment what's the plan The Sinai Peninsula? Okay, this should be interesting. Here we go. Shepherds, let's move forward. All who are fitted for usefulness must be trained by the severest mental and moral discipline. And God will assist them by uniting divine power with human effort. Did God allow Moses to waste all that he had learned? No. When he led the children of Israel out, and he's asking for permission to go through another nation, where do you think he even learned how to approach or even find the place or who to talk to or how he's supposed to talk to them to ask for permission? When it came to how the camp was laid out, I don't know about you, but I can take a family of four camping and run into sanitation issues. <laughs> Millions of people? I mean, did, did God have to tell Moses everything that he was supposed to do? No, he, he prepared him for this. When, when you look at Joshua, did Joshua grow up in the courts of Pharaoh? How did he turn into such a soldier? Where did he get so fearless? Okay. God didn't allow it to go to waste. But what qualified Moses was that he was no longer confident in himself. Now, he didn't. it's not like he had a self-esteem issue. I'm not talking about somebody who, who has a shattered life worldview. He just understood correctly that what God has asked him to do, he couldn't do without God. He wasn't going to do it until God gave him a direct order. Last, last thing that I want to uh, put in as we conclude here. If you want to, you can say after me. I'm going to say it. You don't have to say it. But if you want to say it, you can say it. I am my greatest challenge in life. That, that's the story of Moses right here. It's not some external thing. It's not your kids. It's not your spouse. It's not your job. It's not your car. It's not your, your biggest challenge is you. And God desires to work with each one of us to accomplish more than we can ask or imagine. But we're always trying to hurry things up, get it done the way that we think it needs to be done, as soon as we understand what God is trying to do in our lives, in our home, in our church, in our country, the list could go on. How many of you hear somebody like, that may be true, but we just need to hurry up and get it done? Moses was a man of action. I'm not saying that we should be lazy. Those of you that are worried, the workaholics out there are worried as I say these things. There's only one solution, though. Proverbs 3.6 sums it up nicely. It says, in all your ways acknowledge who? What does that mean? In all your ways acknowledge him. In all your ways properly place God in the equation. Bereshit bara Elohim et ha'aretz. In the beginning God created everything. So when we understand who he is, And our relationship to Him, we can acknowledge Him by properly placing Him in the equations and the calculations that we make in life. Easier said than done, I'll admit it. But when we do that, He may direct your paths. What does it say? He will or shall direct your paths. So in all your ways, acknowledge Him. Is that an act On your part, are you active or passive in acknowledging? It's another trick question here. Active in what manner? Okay, active in knowing and seeing. But if I duct taped you to a chair, could you still acknowledge something? Even if you couldn't do anything. So it's two-pronged, what I'm driving at here. The acknowledgement of who God is in relation to our life is not something that requires us to act. God is who God is. And if we acknowledge who He is, and this is a full experiential acknowledgement. We're not talking with this Western concept of knowing and not doing. He will direct your paths. If you know your proper relationship with God and then wait for His direction, seek Him moment by moment. And so the question that I have for you today, just looking back at the story of Moses, is this. Do you desire to more deeply engage In seeking God and His will and way for your life. If that's your desire, I invite you to stand with me and say, God, I want that. I want, moment by moment, day by day, issue by issue, challenge by challenge, blessing by blessing, to more deeply engage in acknowledging who you are. And seeking you in my life. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we look back at the story of Moses. And thank you that even someone who could mess up that bad. When he properly recognized who you were and who he was. That you were able to redeem him. And work through him despite his frailties. I think of the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus was wrestling with whether the pain and separation from God was worth the salvation of the people who were trying to kill him. That Moses. Was one of the ones who ministered to him to encourage him and let him know that it was worth it. You took a murderer who thought he knew what was going on and gave him a legacy that we will remember throughout eternity. Lord, we ask that you would give us a desire, the energy, the persistence to pursue a relationship with you that transforms our lives from the inside out and that we would remain centered in your will, not month by month, but moment by moment. That is our prayer today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.